You're listening to SHL's Trendlines podcast, where we invite experts in talent management to discuss top trends in people science that help businesses thrive because their people thrive. And welcome to Trendline with Aaron Krask and Lance Andrews, the podcast where we chat with um, experts to get their take on top trends in talent management, leadership, and industrial and organizational psychology. Today is our privilege to have Matt Crane. He holds a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology and is an assistant professor of management at the university at Albany School of Business. Matt, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Good to have you, Matt. We're so excited to have uh, this chat today. It's so timely and relevant to chat about re-entry into work, um, the way the workplace is changing. And as we get kicked off, one of the first things I'd like to do is just ask you to introduce yourself and your line of work. Sure, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I'm Matt Crane. I'm assistant professor of management at the University of Albany uh, School of Business. Um, I've had a little bit of an interesting career trajectory. Uh, when I finished, well, just before I finished my PhD uh, at Penn State University, I actually left academia and academic psychology for three years. I went and worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, as a senior consultant in their uh, human capital strategy practice. So we were doing a lot of change management, talent development, organization design, um, all of those things. And I got to see kind of the applied IO side um, within the context of lots of big organizations, similar to what your all work at SHL is, you know, working primarily in fast moving consumer goods uh, and in the energy industry all over the world. Um, when I was working at PwC, I saw a lot of opportunities for advancing research that kind of disconfirmed my beliefs coming in to that work. It was uh, things I didn't understand about how organizations actually operated that were uh, different than what I expected. And so I was motivated to look for an opportunity to come back into academia, um, to go back to teaching, go back to research, and kind of work on some of these some of these problems that I thought were important. Uh, and so I, I did, I made that transition. Uh, and for the last three years, I've been here in the, the business school and the management department at the University of Albany, uh, where I primarily do research on leader follower dynamics. Uh, leadership is my, my big area, uh, as well as uh, occupational choice. How do people discern what opportunities for jobs they want, how to pursue them, uh, and then big future of work problems, uh, particularly, you know, the, the context of leadership within gig work, you know, what does leadership look like in a totally remote or disconnected work environment. Um, so those are the things that I do now I teach classes on organizational behavior, uh, and leadership and try to bring some of that applied flavor and experiences into all the things that I do here at the university. That's such a fascinating career trajectory. And it's interesting to note that you started in industry and then went to academia, which is not the normal trajectory. It's not the way things usually go. And one of the things that strikes me as we're launching our conversation is how your applied work really influenced the kind of research or the way you approach research today. Yeah, you know, I had, um, I learned a lot about what organizations look like to people, right, from a customer-facing standpoint, you know, how do I think about what an organization that looks successful or like they're operating, clicking on all cylinders is actually like uh, when you get behind the scenes, when you when you peek behind the curtain and see what they're actually doing and the problems that they face and the struggles that they have, you know, pro issues with managing change, with managing uh, individual differences, with managing leadership structures, information silos, you know, you name it, there's a thousand different problems um, that when we think about it from an academic IO side, sometimes we, we miss, we don't see the forest for the trees and getting to see behind 
the curtain a little bit um, and do that work and see, you know, practically what works, what doesn't work, what do executives and boards of directors and employees, you know, individual contributors on the ground think are actually important um, for the function of their organizations, for their experience and work. That was very helpful uh, for me. It gave me a lot of perspective, I think, that I wouldn't have had just coming out of graduate school and going right into my uh into an academic job. Um, so unfortunate, and it, it has informed, you know, the way that I think about these problems uh, and how do I approach research or the questions that I wanna pose. Yes, it's so applied. I think it's so interesting. And as somebody who's had the privilege of working both on the consulting side of the world and also having worked for a big organization, um, it was so shocking to me when I went to go work for one of those big organizations to look around and say, this is a huge organization. It's so successful and they have a great reputation here. And then to get on the inside and, and start to realize, wow, there are some things that are really challenging from change management and getting people on board and people working in silos or you know, distance, making things really challenging to, co to collaborate. And um, just how challenging those processes can be was really enlightening. So I can only imagine the way, especially when you're thinking about leader follower dynamics, when you're thinking about what does that look like in more ambiguous circumstances, how, how real those challenges are and how perpetual they are and, and pervasive across all sorts of industries and organizations. Absolutely. In fact, my, my biggest area of research at the moment, the things that I've been working on the most are you know, leadership in times of crisis, right? What does leadership look like? How do organizations handle crisis situations, what do we look for from leaders in those contexts? What do how do followers interpret the mistakes that leaders make? Um, you know, my recent academic work has focused on COVID because that was so ubiquitous and such a such a you know universal leadership challenge. Um, but those those types of questions are really important to answer at a very practical, granular level. Uh, so, so yeah, there's uh, and it, having not had the context for seeing, you know, just what that that conflicts can look like when things go wrong um, from, you know, coming from industry. Uh, I don't know if I would be as interested or as motivated in that research as I am now, which is, you know, really my primary area at the moment. Yes. And as we're thinking about this topic, re-entry into work, leading through crisis, are there any interesting highlights you can share with us about what that means to lead through crisis and what were some of those qualities that led to successful crisis leadership or where did leaders fall down? So I think, you know, the crisis standpoint uh, for me, and, you know, I, we actually presented uh, at SIAP this year, we had a panel on this exact topic, but um, it's all about sense-making um, from a leadership standpoint, you know, how do leaders interpret what the problem and the shift in the environment is like, and how do they deliver that information to the people that they're trying to get to change their behavior? You know, people have stylistic differences in the way that they interpret the world around them. And what we've demonstrated in our in our emerging research about COVID, um, but what's really kind of been established for, for decades in the you know broader organizational science literature is that how leaders make sense of problems matters a lot. And the choices that leaders make in how to deliver information about what a crisis is, how to think about it, what we should do to correct it, how do we adjust in the future, where do we go from here, all of those things need to be very carefully considered because when you make mistakes in that process, they have a cascading impact in the future, right? If you don't interpret your problem and deliver that interpretation in a way that is salient to the people that you're trying to lead 
in the moment, then the information that you give them later might be misguided. They might not interpret it correctly. They might not accept the, the translation of the data that you're giving them. Uh, and all of those things have real operational consequences. You know, if you're thinking about it from, from really high level COVID, you know, how leaders uh, messaged about the, the virus and its spread and how people thought about, you know, what COVID meant within the context of their cultures was directly related to people's willingness to accept uh, lockdowns, willingness to pursue vaccines, willingness to wear masks in public, do public, you know, social distancing requirements, all of the things that, you know, uh, we, we had people trying to do in this country and in countries all around the world, the variability in how those messages and how that information was delivered directly contributed to the outcomes that you saw in those places, which is, I know, a really kind of big thing to talk about, but uh, is, is a very top of mind example about just exactly how important this process is. That makes so much sense. Clear, concise, consistent. Those are those kinds of things I'm hearing you kind of say about the communication. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of different arguments to be made about what types of sense making, what types of messaging, you know, what, you know, what dynamics are most useful. You could have that conversation a million ways and you could do a lot of research on it. Um, but, it, but in principle, you, you have to have clarity of message. You have to have that consistency. People have to understand what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Um, that's what we've seen as being the most successful thing is when you, know, you have to be able to get people on board with your vision of the problem. Um, and I think a lot of organizations may struggle in that regard for, for with a lot of things because the priorities of leadership are really disconnected from the priorities of people who are individual contributors or folks working in the organizations. That, you know, there's not a great amount of communication, really good information sharing between individual contributors and senior executives within the context of organizations of scale. It just, that's an established problem um, that I, I don't think gets as much attention as it should, but maybe now it's going to get as more attention than it ever has. Yes. And we think about having just gotten through this crisis, just gotten through, well, getting through, I should say, yeah. the COVID pandemic. And now we're faced as leaders with a whole new set of challenges, thinking about how do we reemerge our employees into society, into our workplaces? And that's a whole issue because there are people coming back just outside and starting to live their lives for the first time, let alone go back into the office. And that is so much life change and so much to manage. Um, and interestingly enough, this is so relevant today in particular because Lance, right here is joining us from the office for the first time. Yeah, this is day two for me. I came, I came back to the in Minneapolis, the SHL Minneapolis office. Uh, and it's a yeah, very, very relevant topic for me. I mean, it's just, um, you know, there, there's, we have some physical uh, changes to the office. That, you know, make, I, I'm sure that this desk, or the, probably can't see it, the chair has a, is blocked off so every other chair is blocked off so just physical distancing so like just the physical accommodations that have been made just to make sure that people have space between people um temperature checks when we walk in it's, it's a unique experience but i have to say i was i didn't know how excited i was to, to actually see people i yesterday i was texting my wife and saying how is it it's like it's kind of like the first day of school i wasn't very productive but it was really good like kind of sharing stories and just seeing people that i've seen their two-dimensional face for for 18 or 16 months or whatever 
but yeah, it was, it's been really, uh, really great experience. Um, even despite all the, the physical precautions that are there, which are much needed, but it's, it's been great for me. So interesting. It's, it's wild to think about the, the kinds of things we're used to walking into maybe a restaurant, a smell that start to come back out or, um, you know, maybe at an airport and getting your temperature checked, but just walking into work in the morning, you've got your coffee, you got your thermometer. It's a totally different experience. Yeah. Um, Is that an established new, new process? Is that going to stick around Lance? Have they given you an indication of that? Yeah. I mean, I think for, for the foreseeable future, um, I think the, the stance we're taking, we're not mandating, we can't mandate people get, get vaccines mm. or we're, we're not taking that, that choice and it's optional. So we're just making sure we're minimizing the spread. There's a little questionnaire temperature check touchless thing when you walk in and you, you feel it. Do you feel, have any symptoms? Have you been exposed and you know, kind of containing it? If there's any outbreaks, I would imagine it's just minimizing the, the risks and you know, all the desks are we're, the open office design. So by it's, it was pretty open to begin with. So there's not a lot of confined spaces. So I think it'll be around for a while. So wild. And yeah. as we start to think about that topic, one of the things we wanted to chat about Matt was mm-hmm. how leaders and organizations start to structure their re-entry into work plans. How do you go about creating a strategy to do this, what kinds of things should be in a company's return to work plan? Well, I think, you know, you mentioned just a minute ago that, you know, this is a big, you know, it's very change management-esque. I, I think it's beyond change management-esque. I would, I would say that this is the single largest, most ubiquitous change management project in the history of organizations, period. Um, there, there is simply no company that I think is going to be able to successfully navigate the post-COVID landscape without significantly altering their approach to how they, you know, run their operations. You know, and that some places that might seem, you know, on a smaller scale than others, but you know, there is no return to to pre-pandemic ways. And that's why I asked Lance that question is like, you know, what what constitutes the right choices for reopening, re-entry to work at different places is going to be dependent on the environment outside, right? What are the infection rates for COVID currently in your location? Um, Going to be dependent on your business. Do you work in a, you know, generally separated, you know, high travel, you know, white collar industry like, like consulting, or is this a factory floor where you have people that are, you know, very close together in, you know, in narrow quarters working intimately. Um, those, those plans look different for those folks also with the same objective. You have to keep people safe. You have to keep them healthy. You have to keep operations running. You don't want to shut your facilities down because everyone gets COVID. Um, so, the, so the reopening plans are going to be industry specific, they also have to be culture specific. You know, uh, in my in my professional career doing change management, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest reasons why changes failed writ large, didn't matter what change it was, was because the changes were not actively incorporated into the culture. You had something that people were trying to do or push as an adjustment to what was happening, you know, what they wanted to do in the organization that didn't meet the cultural norms or expectations of their of the organization. Um, so I think, you know, step one for any organization is, you know, assess your risk. What is it that we do as a business? Um, who do we need to keep in the office or in the facility? Who do we not need to have? And that's a, maybe a question we can even get into later on. Is that what is that, what does that type of balance look like? Um, 
but you know, what is our expectation of the, the physical resources, the people resources that we need um, in our facility? What is the work that they actually do? Who do they interact with? Do they work by themselves? Do they not? Um, that establishes baseline of, you know, who do we need to get where and what do our physical facilities seem to look like? But then again, back to sense making, how do I communicate within the norms of my culture, which is very specific? It could be building specific, even within organization, right? I've seen, you know, manufacturing companies where, you know, plant A has a very different culture than plant B, even within the context of the same firm. So, you know, how do I make this problem and the solutions that I'm proposing seem acceptable to the individuals at a person-to-person level that are going to be affected by it. That is, I think, the biggest leadership challenge. It's also not one that is easy to give guidance on because it's so specific. Um, but it also, the flip side, might be the one that is most easily overlooked and has the most opportunity for long-term negative impact. <laughs> Yes, that change management component, I think, is going to be one of the most critical pieces for organizations to focus on. And I also think, just like you were talking about with your consulting experience, it's the place where organizations need the most help. And so I'm thinking about myself in the shoes of a leader, and I'm thinking, okay, so I work an organization, maybe I'm an HR director or a VP, or I'm a leader of a business unit. And I'm saying, I get it. I know what my context is. I know I need to change manage. I know what my culture looks like and kind of the what, but what are some of the universal uh, components of change management that you would say every leader needs to focus on? Good change management processes are going to do what? Or have what? Well, I think they're going to have uh, a clear vision for the future. Right. Yeah. So you know, like we said, we, we're not going to be where we were before trying to establish a change plan or a strategy for reintegrating people into a on-campus, on-site work or, you know, whatever that is, that is rooted in where we were is not going to be successful. I don't think we need to reestablish what it is that our vision for the future is, is supposed to be, right? What do we look like post-pandemic? What does company X do? What is our purpose? What is, you know, our mission, where are we going? All of those things. How does the transition that we're making from where we were 16 months ago to where we are now, how does that set us up for success and health and safety, you know, cause that's still top of mind um, in the future, right? That's, that's gonna be mission number one. So, you know, I always teach, I tell my students when it comes to change management, you know, communication is, is king. Um, getting your message appropriately structured and delivered to the right people at the right time with the right framing um, is, is really important. And particularly for this, I mean, you're trying to get people to feel comfortable. There's, there's I think two competing things with this return to work. You have populations that you're trying to get to feel comfortable coming back to to working in person um, or whatever their future of work looks like. Um, So that's a population that needs a specific type of of discussion. You know, what is it that I'm going to do or say or establish that says um, we're providing for your safety, we're providing for your health, we're trying to be as as, um, open to your potential concerns as possible. That's one population. You also have another population that you have to motivate to come back to work at all, right? They're going to say, you've established this environment where I can do my job remotely. I, you know, I have all of these other benefits that I enjoy because of, um, because of the, the lifestyle that I've kind of developed over the last year and a half. This wasn't two weeks of working remote. This was, you know, people have shifted their entire lives and everything about the way that they work to fit this new normal. Um, for some folks, that's something that they may want to hold on to. And so, you, you know, 
developing a point of view about why it's important for people to come back or what work looks like in the future that's some blend of in-person versus hybrid or remote work or something like that. Having that clear point of view is, you know, a vision for change is, is the kind of baseline for any change project, but it's especially important here. Um, and I, I would say, you know, planning out very clear, you know, reorientation steps. You know, this is, this is not a, uh, I've seen, I've heard from a couple of people, you know, that work in industry about problems they're having in their companies because the executives are trying to just snap their fingers uh, and have everything go back to the way it was, or even trying to acknowledge that things are different, but really bring people back very quickly. Um, that's not going to be helpful. People are going to resent that, that process. You know, how do I plan for a longer, slower, but more deliberate reintegration? What are the milestones that we need to hit? What does change success look like? I mean, it, it is this giant change problem that needs to be planned and action the same way that you would do a technology integration or a merger or any other type of change project. I think that a lot of executives are going to struggle with that mentality because they're so eager to get people back doing what they were doing before, trying to get operations back, you know, stood up the right way, trying to get, you know, culture back and all those things. And I think there will, for the most part, be noble intentions behind that, but it has the opportunity for really disastrous consequences if you don't take the very deliberate steps that it means to, to do change right. Yeah, there's so much to think about in what you just went through. There's so many places where that change needs to be managed so carefully when you're thinking about, I, I hadn't even thought of this, man, but when you're talking about not just what is our strategy and our vision for our return to work, but how does our vision for who we are and how does the North Star of our organization change or shift because of what we've been through? That's a wild idea. And it's not just here's, you know, here's your thermometer and your um, cross off chairs, but it's the big picture of what is mean for us. And, and I've read and heard about this, um, this like, resistance to change people are having because they're saying, well, hold on a second. I have this new lifestyle and I'm not sure I'm willing to give it up. And people are saying what am and they're having all these conversations with themselves about what am I willing to sacrifice in my life to have this flexibility or do I want to go back to work? And some people are clawing to get back into the office because they're ready to leave, you know, their four dogs and three kids at home. And some people are like just ready to stay and, and everyone no matter what your life situation is, is thinking about, well, what does this mean for me? And, um, and there's all these confounding issues of various opportunities for people to come back to work because of the challenges in their personal life. So like some people, their kids aren't in school yet, or if the school's out for many uh, people right now, the schools are starting to go out for the summer. And so, you know, you've got folks who are saying like, but I don't have care yet because the summer camps aren't back open or, you know, like I don't have somebody who can come to my house yet and take care of my kids or, you know, those different challenges. And so it's not just, oh, well, you know, the regulations are not in the state. There's so much to think about and there's so much personal life to think about in the way that leaders haven't always had to think about those things before. Um, and uh, so as you're thinking about those kinds of challenges and, and all those nuances, are some of the things that 
you that would motivate people to come back to work when you're if you were to work with an organization what kinds of things would you say here are the kinds of ways to make people feel comfortable and and drive that return and what are some of the things that you think are going to be the things that leaders will trip on so i think it's a as a great a great question and an important one because the you know as you we were talking through you know the thinking that a lot of people are going through i mean i think that the pandemic particularly in in the West, you know, we can speak, you know, just to the United States. Um, I think that for many people across industries, uh, experiencing this pandemic has forced people to reevaluate what their entire relationship with work is, right? What do they want their relationship with work to be? Um, it's also done, and I said this in an article that I uh, that I was interviewed for with for Forbes magazine. We've also pulled back the curtain on the remote work possibility. Um, you know, there has been decades of research to show that, you know, employees who have the option to work remotely, not if they're forced to, but have the option to work remotely, tend to perform really, really well. Um, they, they don't need to be performance managed too much. They don't need to be monitored for sure. Um, they do their jobs, they do their jobs well, and they have better work-life balance and they have fewer spillover effects and all those things. But, you know, regardless of that evidence, lots of organizations were very resistant to make the move. And, and a lot of that was, you know, framed as, well, it's expensive, you know, our logistics won't allow for it, you know, the business that we do is, is too often face to face, or we really need people around and all those types of things. Um, the rapidity with which basically every organization was able to transition to a virtual or hybrid model, um, you know, save, save, you know, save for like manufacturing, right? And, you know, th things like that, that actually literally physically need people on site. Um, it's going to be very difficult for, for leadership to convince the people in their organizations that the way that they're working now is not sustainable in the future. Um, because they haven't been doing it for two weeks. They've been doing it for 16 months, right? So this is a way of, a way of living and a way of working. I think that leaders are going to stumble with trying to re-message about, you know, well, we really can't do this work, you know, without you here. We can't continue the way that you have been doing things because of X reasons. You're going to need to provide unbelievably overwhelming evidence for that, I think. Um, one, because people are just simply not going to be convinced because they've been doing it for, for this long. Um, and two, because people have adjusted their entire perspective on what their relationship with work is likely to be. Um, and I, I think you will see, you know, we already have an employment problem in the United States right now. It's very difficult to get people to, to work, right, to do jobs. People are scrambling to get new employees. And that's, you know, I, I guess it's a good thing because our unemployment rate is low. Um, but I also think it's because people are being are likely to be very discerning about the work that they want to the one they they want to do. Um, I think companies that try to force the issue and not account for those individual you know expectations and how they've been adjusted are going to struggle to retain talent. I think you're going to see people who are who are willing to seek other opportunities, uh, who are look who are you know, now more confident in, you know, going to a potential employer and saying a hybrid work model is what works best for me. I expect that rather than having it be something that's, you know, given to you as a performance incentive later on. It's, you know, it's now something that people, I think will feel confident asking for when they 
when they think that it's something that they want uh, for their for their careers. That's an entirely new approach to human capital. Um, that's an entirely new approach to talent to talent recruitment to talent retention. Um, and I think that smart companies are going to continue to do what the smart companies were already doing, which was design work in a way that can meet multiple expectations about what work is supposed to be. Does that mean that every employee you have has to be fully remote all the time? No, it actually means that it's more complicated. It means that you have to be able to, to provide this more tailored work experience because it is an experience. It's not just a you know, go to your go to your gig and, and do it and then go home. People, I think, have reevaluated the the role that work plays in their lives and are going to start pushing that view out onto the organizations. And organizations are going to have to respond. Yeah, I mean, you see that from a from an attraction standpoint, like an, an employee employer value proposition. You saw this, like the Silicon Valley companies, like the the tech companies. I think it was maybe Twitter was the first one, but I'm getting it wrong. You know, they said we're going to let indefinitely let employees work remotely and then the other ones fell you know like the yeah. facebook google linkedin they all then started offering that too because that that sets the expectation for your talent pools and that's a complete that's that's a, a perk now yeah. that you have to offer that to to compete with compete to find the right people that want to work for you yeah and you know more organizations are going to have to think about you know, again, different types of, of benefits to provide to, to their employees, right? Childcare being being a huge one. Yeah. You know, the, the absence of, of childcare support for working families has always been an issue, but companies have never really prioritized it, right? That was considered a, a huge get. If you had an organization that was going to provide you on-site healthcare, right, or on-site childcare, you know, I've seen a couple of companies that do that. Um, that's like the benefit that people talk about all the time. You know, they don't talk about their 401ks. They talk about the on-site childcare, on-site healthcare. Um, if people are, you know, now have foregone childcare um, and have, you know, growing families or things like that, and that is their priority, um, you know, and being able to work from home so that they can avoid the costs of childcare or at least do more childcare support, uh, you know, that's become a, a real pull factor for them that may push you out of a, of an organization that, you know, demands that you return to work and doesn't provide you any other, other support where a competitor might say, you know, we'll, we'll give you a hybrid work, you know, work schedule so that you can uh, manage childcare better, or we'll set up, you know, onsite childcare facilities at work so that you can, you can have people, you know, have your children looked after when you come in. Um, I think you're, like I said, the smart, smart companies are going to see, the bigger, broader human capital implications here um, and take seriously what employees want in their work experience, what they value. Um, and I don't think it's going to be dollars. Such an interesting shift that we've always talked about how um, we've seen leaders say, well, I shouldn't have to incentivize my people to work because I pay them. And and then we have to remind them that, no, that's just the exchange you're making. <laughs> baseline. Right. But if you want people to be really excited, then there's other things that need to come with that. And, and you're right, those employers of choice, I can think about um, cities that I've lived in where there's been one or two big companies that offer those healthcare on site or offer those childcare on site. And people are clawing at their doors trying to get in because they want those benefits because they do have working families or that's, they do have, you know, reasons that that makes their life easier in other ways. And, and that's just, that's worth, you know, the, the, whatever the rest of that comes with that. And so 
Um, it's just such an interesting, interesting time. And I cannot believe how quickly this conversation has flown. I could ask you 17 more questions here all day. Um, and Matt, I just want to take a moment to thank you for your insight and your perspective. It's such an interesting thing to hear from somebody who has such deep roots in the practice and in the business world, and also really in touch with science and heavily engaged and the cutting edge work that's happening in this field from an academic perspective. And for folks out there who are really interested in learning more about this, where can they find more about your writing and your teaching and your thoughts? Yeah, you can uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm just at Matt Crane. M-A-T-T-C-R-A-Y-N-E uh, on Twitter. Uh, that's where I post everything about the research that I do, as well as, you know, just general thoughts on science and industry and things that are going on in the in the world of work. Uh, you can visit my website, www.mattcrane.com. Uh, there's links to all of my research on there, as well as, you know, active projects and people that I'm collaborating with. Uh, and I have a Google Scholar page and a ResearchGate page if you're looking to actually download the empirical or theoretical work that I've, that I've put out recently. Um, that's those are easiest places to find me. Fantastic. Thank you again so much for the time, this incredible conversation. Um, thank you to our listeners for listening to Trendline today as we chat with Matt Crane about this incredibly important and relevant topic of returning to work. And uh, thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. Thanks for listening to SHL's Trendlines podcast. To learn more about how SHL helps companies leverage their greatest asset, their people, please visit shl.com.